one minute of patience, ten years of peace. A Greek proverb. Evictions were a constant part of Giannis's childhood growing up. After packing their belongings, his family had a fridge full of food, and they didn't know what to do. Kostas, Giannis's younger brother, sm- spotted a small skateboard. Let's put it on the skateboard, he squealed. Giannis, 12, and his father stared blankly at each other. What other option did they have? Let's give it a try, Charles, their father said. The three of them managed to hoist the fridge on top of the skateboard. It seemed impossible. This giant fridge on a puny skateboard. It looked ridiculous. But Giannis held one side up, while Kostas and Charles held the other, and they wheeled the fridge out the door. As a 12-year-old, Giannis was already used to moving, not knowing what would happen next. All he knew was that he couldn't show fear. He couldn't cry. His younger brothers depended on him looked up to him. He'd come to us and explain to us why we were leaving, Kostas recalls. Giannis was calm, but stern. When we spoke, even though he himself was just a kid, when he told his brothers everything would be okay, we believed him. As they began wheeling the fridge down the road, Giannis reassured them that it would not break. They had about a mile to go, as they'd be staying at a friend's house until they figured out where to live next. They kept holding onto the fridge, praying it wouldn't tip over. They didn't care who was looking at them, judging them. They wheeled and wheeled, pushed and pushed, as the hot sun beat down on their backs. The fridge kept wobbling, threatening to topple over on the narrow sidewalk, especially when the skateboard grazed over loose stones on uneven pavement. They breathed a sigh of relief upon making it to the friend's house. Their arms were sore, their hands stiff. The sky was dark. Standing in the elevator, fridge beside them, they couldn't believe that the little skateboard didn't break. Like the skateboard, little did anyone expect Giannis to have a willpower so impregnable. Welcome to the Goat Pod. I'm your host, Dr. Devin, and today we'll be studying the life of Giannis Antetokounmpo. The information from today's study is from the biography Giannis, The Improbable Rise of an NBA Champion by Mirren Fader. Together, we're going to be going over the game tape and the qualities and characteristics that made an individual go from poverty to becoming one of the greatest NBA basketball players to have ever lived. As the famous David Senra says, history doesn't repeat itself. Human nature does. Studying conquerors and legends feels like a fucking cheat code. To be able to extract the essences. And we're both so fortunate that these biographies exist. If we can understand the nature involved in greatness, and we can apply even a small percentage of it towards our own lives, it can meaningfully impact our ability to achieve the desires we have. Giannis was six years old when he started selling items on the street to help his family. He'd go with Thanasis, his older brother, and his mother. They'd essentially arbitrate, buy some cheaper trinkets in a poorer neighborhood, and then sell them to tourists in the richer areas. Giannis didn't understand what they were doing at first. What was really happening? How deeply they were suffering? 
But he knew things weren't good. He knew he was hungry. He'd see their pantry, their fridge. Some days they didn't sell enough to have a meal until late into the night. He saw that being there, convincing someone to buy something from them, was a matter of eating or not eating, surviving or not surviving. Giannis saw how his parents would stiffen after a long days of work, try to mask their pain. We saw them work every day to provide for us, Giannis says. He'd watch his dad sit at the table, not eating, trying to smile through it. Charles would always tell the kids, don't worry about it. I'm not eating. I have to make sure my kids eat. Giannis saw the way his father would sacrifice, so he began sacrificing too. Giannis would scramble to find one or two euros for a yogurt or a croissant, pretend that he had Aiden, and he'd give the food to his younger brothers. He'd go to sleep with his stomach rumbling, trying to forget that he was hungry, but satisfied that he was helping his family. As Francis Ford Coppola once said, the story of the father is embedded in the son. Giannis wants to be a professional soccer player at age 11, just like one of his idols, Thierry Henry, the legendary French striker. Giannis also wanted to emulate his dad, who was also a professional soccer player in Nigeria. Dribble like him, score like him, move like him. Giannis was just as focused, as intense, as his dad was approaching pickup games as if they were real matches. That's how Charles operated. He would teach the kids about maximizing time, maximizing every minute. Make sure what you give your time to is worth it, Charles would tell them. You shouldn't wait one more day than what's necessary. If you can accomplish something today, why wait until tomorrow? Go get it today. Giannis had zero interest in playing basketball. All he cared about was soccer. Velianidis, a local coach in Athens, looked closer at 13-year-old Giannis upon passing him a park, and he felt something, something divine. This is not possible, he thought to himself. God is talking to me. When he saw Giannis's long limbs, his Gumby-like arms, what he noticed was that Giannis never seemed to tire, running, running, running. He was just having fun. But there seemed to be a seriousness about him, a focus to him. All my life, I am trying to find this. Velianidis likened seeing a young Giannis stumbling on young Mozart. Velianidis walked over to the boys. Where are you from? He asked Giannis who seemed quiet, shy. Nigeria, Velianidis remembers Giannis telling him. Giannis was born in Greece, but his family is from Nigeria. Do you do any sports? No. What jobs do your parents do? My mom takes care of people. My dad was working in a garage. Velianidis sensed that the boy's parents did not have stable work. He knew there was a little opportunity for black people in Sepolia. If I find work for your parents, it would be about 500 euros a month. Will you play basketball for me? Giannis paused, looked at his brothers. They fell silent, confused by what they were hearing. Who is this man? What does he want from us? After a few minutes, though, and with some hesitation, Giannis half-heartedly agreed, and Valianitis told him to bring his parents to the playground so they could have a conversation. In this moment, Velianidis said, Giannis made the decision of his lifetime. 
Villianitis was trying to find diamonds in the rough. Diamonds that wanted to be coached. His main job was to find playground talents. Not skilled guys, not talented guys, not shooters. Physical guys, maybe taller, maybe longer. Greek law at the time prohibited undocumented immigrants over the age of 15 from playing organized sports without a sponsor, according to Villianitis. Even though Giannis was born in Greece, unlike the US, since his parents were undocumented, Giannis was neither Greek nor Nigerian. He was functionally stateless. Giannis's heart was still in soccer, given that his dad was such a fantastic player. The 13-year-old still how wanted to turn still wanted to somehow turn pro in soccer. He had zero interest in basketball, though basketball seemed like it would help pay the bills. A thought I had while reading this was that you can still become a GOAT, even if it's within a domain or something that you don't intrinsically like at first. When we think of GOATs, we often think of child prodigies, Luka Doncic, young Mozart, but there's some off the top of my head, Ray Kroc, founder of McDonald's, Oprah Winfrey, maybe it has something to do with internal qualities more than the activity itself. Velionitis pleaded. He wouldn't give up. Give it a chance, Velionitis remembers telling Giannis, for your family. Family was the only reason Giannis was even open to listening to this strange man who wouldn't leave him to his brothers alone. Giannis wanted to be like Thanasis. Thanasis loved basketball, so if that meant hanging out with him more, he was open to it. A few issues still existed, though. First, the club was really far away, in a completely different neighborhood. So Garifu, where the gym is located, was about 10 miles away. They'd have to leave school, walk 20 minutes to the train, hop on a train, then hop on another train. The metro to the red line, then walk 20 minutes, then hop on a bus, 2.30, just to get to the team's gym for practice. It was about a 50-minute trip. Second, Giannis and Thanasis would need a sponsor real quick. Thanasis was about 15, so Velianitis had to lobby on the boys' behalf to allow them to play. They were able to eventually get a sponsor, but it was a pain in the ass. Zevis was the coach. He kept an open mind, but tempered his expectations. Giannis was young. Nobody knew who the kid was, who any of his brothers were. We had to see if they were good for basketball, Zevis says. For illustrative purposes, the club was super run down. It wasn't the best area and was later described by scouts that was coming to find overweight athletes, coaches, just smoking together. It really wasn't serious. His teammates couldn't even touch the backboard, let alone dunk. The coaches watched young Giannis run up and down the floor. He was so thin, so lanky, so skinny, that it looked like he might fall over if someone tapped him on the shoulder. Zevis thought one word to himself. Shadow. He kept saying the word over and over in his mind. Shadow, shadow, shadow. He really was like a shadow, Zevis says, in that Giannis was quiet and unassuming. He was one of those tall players who would slouch just a bit to blend in. He was polite and friendly, but didn't say much to anyone. He didn't really want to be there. He still didn't really want to be there. His biggest weakness? Everything. He wasn't that good at first. He was passionate, though. And Zevis had a hunch why. Just look at Giannis's body. He wasn't eating the proportions he needed. That's why he was really slim. Once, the Gnosis wasn't playing well in the game, 
and Melianitis took him to a Greek restaurant after. And he remembers Thanasis eating eight souvlaki with double bread, a large amount of food. Velionitis had a friend eat with them. I told my friend after, now you understand. It's not these, that the kid is not talented. It's that these kids are starving. At this point in Greek political times, Greek was going through that financial crisis. One in three Greeks lived below the poverty line. Minimum wage was reduced by 22%. More than 20,000 were homeless. Without papers, Charles and Veronica, his, Veronica's his mother, were forced to take under-the-table work wherever they could, but it was never enough. Velionitis recalls growing more concern for the family. He started subsidizing the Antetokounmpo's out of his own pocket, he says, even when he himself didn't have that much. He became close with the boys, spending time training with them, teaching them the fundamentals of the game. He loved us too much. I cannot say where the love came from, Giannis later told on Milwaukee. I didn't even know him so well. He helped us so much. He was, Giannis said, like a second father to me. The boys' teammates began to catch on what they were going through. Christos Salustris, Giannis's close friend on the team, started noticing that Giannis wasn't eating. He'd ask Giannis, are you okay? Are you hungry? Do you want something to eat? Giannis would shake his head. No, I'm okay. But then you see them, them as in the brothers, why, Salustris says. In their eyes, you can see that they're hungry. Giannis never talked about his hunger. He didn't want people to know, to feel sorry for him. He just wanted to compete. Compete hard. He never asked from me or the other players for any sort of money, says Milas, the assistant coach. Giannis would sprint and hustle and sprint and hustle. Basketball wasn't necessarily his refuge yet, but it was a convenient distraction. When his hands were dribbling, he didn't have to think much about hunger. When his legs were sprinting, he didn't have to think much about hunger. Hunger was something he learned to downplay. Hunger was something he learned to compartmentalize. Until practice ended, he could not keep sprinting, keep distracting himself. He'd go home, stiffen his lip, and act like the leader his brothers needed. Act like he'd already ate so he could give to his brothers. Act like his stomach was not growling. It's interesting. Throughout the book, Giannis is described as being almost presented as if he was older than he actually was. He's functionally like a second father to in the support role that he plays for his brothers. He himself almost doesn't get to be a child. He is forced to be an adult from such a young age. Giannis wanted to be just like the Gnosis. They were extremely close, being the two oldest brothers. They had an older brother, Francis, but he lived in Nigeria, and there isn't much talk about him in the book. Wherever Thanasis was, Giannis was. Whatever Thanasis said, Giannis repeated. Nobody is untouchable, Thanasis would tell Giannis. The tallest towers in the world can still get torn down. 13-year-old Giannis internalized those phrases, would repeat them over and over, and then he put them into practice, guarding Thanasis. He was much stronger, much more physical. Thanasis dominated him. And then, but the lesson was clear, never back down from anyone. The Gnosis would foul Giannis, put an elbow in his post, put an elbow in his back in the post, rough him up, 
The Gnosis learned toughness from their father. Once, Charles argued with the Gnosis when he saw him playing casually in the neighborhood, taking it way too easy on his opponents. What you are doing is not right, Charles said. Do not let the other guy breathe. If you want to be great, it all starts with the way you think. Giannis's father and brother are constantly molding his moral behavior compass. And as we go through the story, you'll notice a lot of quotes from the Nasus almost being like that motivation for him with phrases that are constantly echoed. And Giannis absorbs all of it like a sponge. Our household never had something that was individual to somebody. Alex, the youngest brother, says. Everything that we had was for everyone. That's why there wasn't many arguments between us. Because when you don't have stuff that's individual to you, you share everything. It's like, what is there to fight about? They'd split food, often one souvlaki at a time, each taking a bite before handing it to the next, cracking jokes about whatever happened that day. Because they learned the difference between want and need, and they stopped thinking about what they wanted, stopped thinking about what they didn't have. They focused on gratitude for what they did have. You might think you have it bad. Then somebody right next to you has it worse, Costas says. Giannis didn't tell Costas and Alex how badly they were struggling as a family. He wouldn't tell them, we have no food. We can't pay rent tomorrow. You can't hang out with your friend because we've got to work. Those things would cross his mind. But he didn't want his brothers to feel afraid, to feel pain. Something I've been personally thinking about the past few months is the concept of love. And more so what we know what it feels like, but like, how do you define it? And the, the last excerpt like really reminded me of that and reminded me of some of the stuff I was thinking about. And I think that love is the willingness to suffer for another individual. To quote, he didn't want his brothers to feel afraid, to feel pain. They didn't have the option of making it. They had to make it somehow. And Giannis would make sure of it. He would do whatever he had to do to make sure of it, to make sure he didn't have to see Alex's crestfallen look one more time when he would ask if they could get something that they couldn't afford. He loved them. The real fun happened on the outside court. Tritinus, court in Sapolia, nestled among some stores, just a few minutes away from their family home. The court became their refuge. Sometimes their friends would come too, and they'd play late into the evening in the summers if they weren't preoccupied with a long selling trip for the next day. There, they didn't have to think about money. They could just play. And they loved when their dad would join them. Charles was about 43, able to dunk the ball, and he had never played basketball in his life. He really didn't know how to play. He'd travel all over the place, commit all sorts of dribbling violations, but somehow he'd rise up to the rim and hammer the ball home, leaving his boys in awe. When Charles wasn't playing with them, he was encouraging them. When they'd have a bad game, he'd soothe them by telling them, tomorrow's another day. Let go of the past. Just keep working. The boys, the boys thought Charles was the most successful man in the world, even though some days he didn't have a euro in his pocket. Giannis didn't love basketball just yet, and Zevis couldn't control Giannis's whereabouts. What he's saying there is that Giannis was so focused on selling and making food for his, making money for his family so they had food, so he'd skip practice a lot initially. He was patient when Giannis would leave and then return, leave and then return. He understood that what Giannis and his family were going through, 
But then Giannis starts to leave for longer periods of time. And at one point, Velionitis, who was still an assistant coach with them, couldn't find Giannis for four weeks. Giannis stopped coming, Velionitis says. Velionitis was sure Giannis was a lost cause. He thought, the boys quit for good, he thought. Zevis urged Velionitis to not give up, to do something. Velionitis agreed. He went to Giannis's family apartment for one last plea. He bought Giannis a book, a biography of soccer legend Diego Maradona. This is another key common theme with many of the greats. Many of them read biographies and cited the greats before them, just like what you and I are doing right now. He knew Giannis still wished he could become a pro soccer player, and when he saw the local, when he saw the book at a local bazaar. He had to snag it for him. Giannis opened the door and Velionitis walked in and sat down. He handed Giannis the book. This is you, Velionitis said, pointing to Maradona on the cover. You are the Maradona of basketball. Which is wild to say because it's a 13-year-old kid who's shit at basketball at this point. But it's inspiration. And oftentimes that like Ability to believe that you can get to a certain point is just the spark you need to be in your journey, to create desire. Giannis had a passion for defense. He genuinely enjoyed it. While other players groaned at having to bend low, having to sprint back. But defense was something Giannis could always control. He could always control how hard he played, how much he cared, and he started to care a lot more than he had when he first started playing. Back when he didn't want to be caught anywhere near a basketball court. After, after the team would finish a 9 a.m. practice, everyone would go home, rest and eat, and return at 5 p.m. for a second training sesh. They'd come back to the court, and they'd see the same thing every single time. Giannis didn't leave the court, says Salustris, his teammate and close friend. That ended up rubbing off on a lot of players. He was working so hard, and that made me want to work harder. At one point, Giannis and friends were supposed to attend a party. Oh, this is really fun. And they were excited to meet some girls. The plan was to go after practice, but after practice ended, Giannis wanted to keep shooting. Rana, his teammate, asked why he wasn't coming to the party that they agreed to. I, I want to say this quote in Pat Bev's Giannis impression, just because it would make it sound more hilarious. When I play basketball, when I am here, Giannis told them, practicing these moves, dunking, shooting, this is my girlfriend. I forget about girls. I forget about everything. I just don't want to go. I thought he was weird, Rana says. But Giannis stayed for the next man's practice, even after his own workout. No man has the right to be an amateur in the matter of physical training. It is a shame for a man to grow old without seeing the beauty and strength of which his body is capable of. Socrates. A common theme we find in studying legends and conquerors is the maximization in all dimensions of their life. If you haven't mastered your physique yet, work with myself and my team at MileCoach. MileCoach is a men's lifestyle training company, with accountability being our number one focus. We take a data driven approach to improve your exercise, nutrition, supplementation, and sleep. So you're able to have what, you've, what you rightfully deserved this whole time. Power.
There's a link in the description below, or check us out at our website, myomyocoach.com. Enjoy the rest of the show. When Giannis was outside with his friends or on the court, he'd have to pretend that things were okay like he did at home. Smile when his parents asked him how he was. Tell the landlords who came knocking, we'll pay you later. We're just waiting to get paid, we promise. For a moment, he could forget about everything they were going through. Forget that oftentimes he wouldn't eat his first meal until 11 p.m. So he kept distracting himself, making sure he was always on the move. He couldn't stay in the house because he was really depressed, Rana says. So Giannis and Rana would stay out late after practice and find a place to sit. Rana could tell that his friend was hurting, though he kept a lot of it inside until he couldn't anymore. Giannis had finally let his guard down to come down and burst into tears. I look at my mother, Giannis would tell Rana in between sobs. I see how she is. I see how hard she's trying to get things for us and I'm helpless. I cannot do anything. I feel destroyed. Sometimes Thanasis would show up, finding the two on a bench, making sure they were okay, safe. Thanasis would rub Giannis's back and try to soothe them. Don't cry. Don't shed tears for anyone, Thanasis said. We will make it. This part of the story really highlights how Giannis is neurologically wired. Everything he's experienced would be tough for a man, let alone a boy. His dopamine is wired in a way where he's just seeking stimuli that can help him. There's a famous Chris Williamson quote, and this quote is from a psychotherapist he had on his podcast called Adam Lane Smith. And the quote goes like, Male depression is often treated like female depression. Men are made to feel loved and accepted when all they want to do is feel capable and powerful. Give a man a purpose and the ability to achieve it and he'll crawl through broken glass with a smile. Feeling capable and powerful and competent and respected and admired is something that will get a man so far. And if you give a man those things, he'll deal with suffering until the ends of the earth. We are designed to deal with suffering, but it needs to be in service of something. Giannis began to frequent internet cafes, watching videos of NBA highlights with voiceovers of motivational speeches about not making excuses, about working hard, such as inch by inch, inch by inch, play by play, till we're finished, the voice of Tony D'Amato, Al Pacino's character in Any Given Sunday, would say. We're in hell right now, gentlemen. Believe me. We can stay here, get the shit kicked out of us, or we can fight our way back. Life's this game of inches. The margin of error is so small that you don't quite make it. Then you watch another video called Don't Stop Until You Succeed. There were Durant and LeBron running on treadmills while carrying medicine balls. When you succeed as bad as you want to breathe, then you'll be successful. A Giannis was an OG hope core boy. Giannis started to let himself dream really dream. He had to transform himself into the players on that screen. He didn't know much about who they were, but he knew he wanted to be them, run faster than them, outplay them, be there in America, watching these videos, seeing other greats. The NBA was no longer some abstract concept. It became everything to him. All he thought about, besides helping his family, Giannis was watching NBA highlights, 
Giannis pointed to a Chicago's Bull uniform and told a teammate, that jersey? One day, I'm going to be wearing one of those jerseys in the NBA. His teammate laughed, remembering this, this confidence brewing in his friend. It wasn't loud. It wasn't cocky. It was a quiet assuredness. As David Sunrise would say, belief comes before ability. When Giannis started dreaming, his brother started dreaming. It was like Giannis was coming up with the vision that gave them permission to let their minds wander. Let wishes, wants come in. Alex and Kostas began to demand more out of each other. They saw how disappointed Giannis would be in himself when he lost games. How Giannis would ask Melas, the assistant coach, for his stats after the game and ask how he could perform better. The boys would look at other kids' fun when they told them that they just played for fun. We'd be like, oh, okay, that's cool. We play basketball for fun too. But we play basketball for much more, much more bigger reasons, Alex says. We just need more time. His mother's words, always in his head. The team had a practice that morning, and before leaving for the airports, Salustris told them, I'm sorry, next Saturday, you're going to play. Don't worry about it. At this point, Giannis didn't have a passport, because once again, he's undocumented. So we can fly. Giannis was devastated. Salustris kept telling him that it was okay. He would get to play again in a week, but Giannis couldn't be consoled. He started crying. Salustris embraced him, assured him that this would not harm his chances of playing professionally. You're going to play a lot of games in your career. It's just one game. It wasn't just one game to Giannis. Not knowing what else to do, he grabbed a ball and started dribbling. Started shooting. As his teammates left for the airport, Giannis stayed on the court for almost two days straight. He tried to outshoot his pain. Stubborn. That's the only way Giannis's family and friends knew how to describe the mentality Giannis was developing on the court. It's a family trait, Alex says. Stubborn meant that Giannis wouldn't give up. Even if he was losing badly, even if he was still not physically capable, Giannis meant that he believed himself equal to every person on the court. What makes you more special than me? God made us both, he'd think to himself, remembering Thanasis' words. Nobody is untouchable. The tallest towers in the world can still get torn down. And he'd grind and grind, motivated by the belief that he was worthy. He'd tell his brothers that too. If God made us the same, therefore we are equal. The only thing that truly makes me better than you is my mindset. And if my mindset is the constant point of stubbornness, then you can't really beat me. Earlier in the book, too, like this stubbornness trait was like something Giannis had when he was much younger. He was also described as stubborn, convincing people that they needed items that they hadn't considered essential, like a salesman. He'd keep asking question after question. He felt like he was the best salesman in the family, besides his mom, of course. He wouldn't give up, peppering prospective buyers with questions. You want this glass? He'd say. No. Oh, but they're really nice. They're going to help you do this. Oh, no, we don't. But why? It makes sense to where he gets his stubbornness from. That stubbornness early in his life was the difference between him eating or not. So perhaps that stubbornness can be defined as to have a desire greater than the individual in which you are in the same context of. So like on the court, Giannis's stubbornness was in reality just his desire to win was greater than the opponent's. 
Another common theme throughout the book is Giannis crying. His emotional experience was quite visceral. One of the best Greek players, Nikos Papas, said to Giannis, I bet you're not going to score on me. Giannis responded, that's not happening. It did. Papas destroyed Giannis. It was ugly. Giannis was so stubborn, he wanted to keep playing and playing until he got a point, but he never did. Papas won 33-0. It was humiliating for Giannis. And he was struggling in front of all his friends and he was crying after the game. In another instance, Giannis was facing a player who was about 50 pounds heavier than him, and the guy torched him. Giannis started crying after because he was losing, but he battled and battled. Giannis almost started a fight because he couldn't accept that he was being beaten like this. Giannis calmed down, took a few breaths, wiped his eyes, but it wouldn't be the last time he wanted to succeed so badly that he cried. Crying wasn't weird or out of the ordinary. That's just how passionate Giannis was. How frustrated at himself he'd get for his inability to master a move or a dunk. And he'd do it again and again and again until it was perfect. Sometimes he felt like he wasn't measuring up to the players he wanted to be. He'd been so hard on himself since he was a kid, Alex says. He would cry after many games too. He would ask Zivas for the stat sheet. And if he saw too few rebounds too many missed shots, and especially if his team lost, he'd retreat to the corner and shed a few tears. There's a childlike nature to his emotions, like he's perfectly in tune with his emotional side. When a bad thing happens, he cries. And perhaps it's because his inner child's been repressed from having to be mature for so long. On the court when he's in the flow and the outside world is non-existent, his inner desire to get his family out of poverty is so harmonically balanced with what he's doing on the court, that whenever something feels like a sea, like a gap between him achieving his desires and where he currently is, he feels helpless, hopeless, like a child when they aren't able to achieve what they want. In some ways, Giannis's life was improving. Philotheticus, his team, helped him and his family move to Zogarufu so they could be closer to the gym. And many locals were helping him too. I'm not going to touch on it too much, but it really is, you need a village to raise a child. Many made sure he was eating some food. Giannis started to believe a different life was within his reach. That if he worked hard enough, if he had a little bit of luck, he could make it. But he couldn't relax. He couldn't let anyone see weakness in him. And the following is an important line here. He would teach his brothers that what separates people and players is the ability to recognize when the mind relaxes. It's human nature, Giannis would tell his brothers. The mind has to return to killer mode, as he calls it, as soon as possible. Giannis told them that they needed to be stubborn. He would think of his parents while working out. Think of the food he would share with his brothers. Think of how Veronica would plead with, this, with Charles to eat. Charles, you gotta eat, she'd say, but he'd shake his head. No, let my kids eat first. Giannis didn't want to let him down. And th there's a funny story, more recently actually, I think it was two summers ago, where Giannis was in Greece with his newborn son, Liam, and his wife, our girlfriend, Mariah, and basically, and this is just to show like the level of intensity he has, he created a drill where for every missed shot he'd have, 
his child and his wife would have to run suicides essentially. So it really just goes to show like his level of intensity and how something, this is a quote that he said when he was a child, still exists with him today. And let's maybe dive in a little deeper and let's understand what Giannis meant by under, but when he said the mind relaxes. When you have a goal in mind, a desire that's so strong, so undeniable, like wanting to start a company or wanting to start exercising, your mind undergoes an experience called self-suppressive escapism. When you are suffering and you aren't where you want to be, your mind will find like potions, food, social media, porn as ways to numb the mind. It's almost like when you are suffering, your mind wants to escape essentially. The return to killer mode, as Giannis would best say, is best encapsulated by Chris Williamson's quote, the magic you are looking for is within the work you are avoiding. Sometimes Giannis would look like a track star, ready to accelerate and leap up to the rim. Other times, he looked hesitant, lost, getting rid of the ball quickly, shying away from contact. But Cornell David, an international NBA scout, saw things he liked. Giannis's six foot nine frame, his athleticism, his basketball IQ. Giannis couldn't understand why sorry, David couldn't understand why Giannis's opponents in the A2 division looked like washed up rec league players with pop bellied and stubbled chins. Why none of the Philatitos um, opponents couldn't even touch the backboard. And he wondered why Giannis wasn't playing in a bigger club like Olympiakos. Later on, David says, I find out because he does not have citizenship and he started late. Despite the unevenness, David was impressed. He returned to his hotel, writing in his notebook that night. Raw talent, length, athleticism, mobile for his size, skinny, but runs up and down well. Ball skills advanced for his age. Never tried to take over, unselfish. This guy could be Magic Johnson. Not sure why he's playing here. Why he isn't around better talent. And nobody in a nobody division, in a nobody gym, is the next Magic Johnson? Come on. Even David knew the comparison seemed far-fetched. It was far-fetched. But the way Giannis dribbled, towering over his opponents, he was far away from being a legend, David said, but I thought he could be something. Giannis would meet with Georgios Panu, a Greek NBA agent, and Panu really believed that Giannis could be an NBA player. The real NBA, Giannis said? The NBA I see on TV? Like others, Panu grew closer to the family. He noticed Giannis wasn't eating much and explained to him that he would need to start eating differently than his brothers and family if he were to have a future in basketball. Panu took him to a nutritionist for medical tests, and the doctor was shocked. Giannis's livering was suffering so much because of his eating habits that the doctors thought Panu had sent him a 70-year-old who constantly drank. So he was experiencing liver cirrhosis, which is common in individuals who have malnutrition. Panu continued to believe in Giannis, later steering him to agent Alex Sorotsis. The group began emailing NBA and EuroLeague scouts, sending Giannis's game footage, a compilation that ran 9 minutes, 46 seconds, writing, I've got somebody here, a secret. Nobody knows about him. Later that day, 
Panu told Giannis that if he did end up playing in Spain, he'd have to find a place by himself to live. Excuse me? What do you mean I have to go there? We will go, Giannis said, referring to his mom. You're a young guy, his agent said. You'll have fun there. Why do you want to take your mother with you? Giannis started crying. I'm not going anywhere. Panu apologized and said he was joking and not to worry about it, but Giannis couldn't help but worry. It didn't matter if his dream was within reach. Without his family, it meant nothing. And word would eventually get out that this Marvel prospect existed in Greece, and NBA teams would send scouts to study Giannis. Adding to the risk, Giannis wasn't able to come to America and to work out with prospective teams since he didn't have a passport. It's not a common thing drafting a guy out of nowhere, and he was a guy out of nowhere, not having citizenship. Delayed passport, all these circumstances kept him a secret. How can you evaluate a guy who can't leave the country? There were so many scouts that the gym didn't have enough chairs for them. Giannis didn't believe his agents at first when they told him the guys watching him were truly NBA scouts. It was surreal. Man, the scouts came from the NBA, Giannis said. And I didn't play good. You scored 30. You won the game. No, no, no. Another time, Giannis scored 21 points, grabbed 10 rebounds, so a double-double. And he cried after thinking of all the things he should have done better. He knew that he was he knew what he was capable of, Alex says. That's why he was so upset at himself. Giannis couldn't afford to slip, to relax, not with everything he had dreamed of being so close. The Greek government continues to drag its feet in regards to trying to get him a passport. It was 2013 and the NBA draft was coming up. He's 18 at this time. The Greek Basketball Federation tried to move mountains in its ways to get Giannis a Greek passport. Forget it. We don't want to risk going to elections because of some guy that plays basketball. Other local reporters speculated what would happen if Greece didn't give Giannis papers. It would mean that beyond any shadow of a doubt that Greece eats her own, one writer wrote at the time, and that Greek basketball has lost the biggest talent it's ever laid its hands on. However, Given that, the Nos- given that Giannis performing so well in the NBA could benefit Greece, once they re- recognized the potential of Antetokounmpo, the process was very quick. Giannis and Thanasis were granted a special exemption and received citizenship papers on May 9, 2013. Come draft day, the Milwaukee Bucks draft Giannis with the 15th overall pick. Giannis hugged Thanasis, then walked up to the podium shook the commissioner's hand, flashed a wide smile. He looked so eager, so excited, so young, so baby-faced. He was only 18. Giannis doesn't remember much about what happened after that. He remembers being so nervous, saying, thank you so much, and hearing the commissioner say, look over here, look over there, look over there, good luck with your journey. As the camera lights flashed, Giannis was proud of himself. He had been through so much to get to this point. Giannis and Thanasis returned to their hotel room that night and celebrated by jumping on the bed, giggling like little kids. They started praying and promising that their little brothers were going to have a better future than them, that they would go to private schools, receive proper educations. They even skipped their parents that night and Kostas and Alex, telling them that their lives were going to change. Everything would be all right. And... What's funny, it's, it's really reflective of Giannis's values. If you go on YouTube and you search up his draft day interview, 
you see him sitting with Denosis at the media interview. They're both wearing a Bucks hat. Only Giannis got drafted, but he does everything with his brothers. When the two both arrive in Milwaukee the next day, the Bucks had booked Giannis and Thanasis in two separate rooms. The brothers didn't understand why anyone would do such a thing. That seemed crazy to them. That's way too extravagant. So Thanasis just stayed in Giannis's room. They just slept in one bed, just as they always had. Now fast forward a few months and training camp starts. And boy, oh, was Giannis in for a world of pain. They were definitely not in Greece anymore. Giannis turned around and looked confused. Who's OJ? Referring to OJ Mayo. Mayo smirked, curse under his breath. This dude don't even know who I am. You'd have to show him. And he wasn't the only one. Everyone took turns at Giannis in the next drill. A player from the opposite wing would drive hard to the basket, so go towards the basket, and the defensive player would have to slide over and take the charge. It's called the 2-9 drill, but it really should have been called the knock Giannis over drill. We had to let him know, welcome to the league, Rook. He might look like a Greek god now, but back then, there was no way he was going to make it. If you blew on him, he'd fall over. I think it was reported that he like weighed one like 70 or something at 6'9, which is wild, right? He was a super skinny scrub, but an endearing scrub. He got up quickly, not looking too discouraged. Butler, his teammate, turned to Nate, Nate Walters, another teammate, and smiled. This kid's going to be special. At the end of the practice, Larry Drew, his coach, handed every player a playbook so thick that it would take hours to comb through. By dinner time, Giannis texted Drew and told him he noticed an error in one of the defensive in one of the offensive plays. Drew blanked. The rookie corrected him. His first NBA coach on his first day in the NBA. But it would be clear. Giannis was studious, a stickler for the details. He wanted to make an impact. But for now, he was a mere punching bag. Giannis's body couldn't execute what his mind told him to do. His teammates mocked his thin, thin frame, calling him baby giraffe, Gumby, stop sign. They told him he was built like Sean Bradley. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> the uncoordinated six foot, seven foot six center who had recently been playing for the Mavs. Giannis didn't know who Bradley was. You should Google this if you just understand the context if you don't know who Sean Bradley is. Once he consulted Google and realized it was an insult, he fumed to himself. Oppenheimer, the Bucks assistant coach, nicknamed Giannis Bambi. When Giannis would trip and fall on himself, players would howl in laughter. There goes them Bambi legs. Giannis knew Bambi didn't sound like a good thing. But he didn't understand what it meant. He still earned learning English. Coach, Giannis asked Oppenheimer. What is Bambi? It's a baby deer, Oppenheimer said. No, coach, I am not baby deer. No, I am not Bambi. He started speaking in Greek when he was really pissed off. But the veterans' plans were working. They wanted to get in the rookie's head and make him angry. We were trying to get him to be that aggressive Giannis. The one y'all see now all the time says Chris Wrights, a Bucks forward at the time. But even then, Giannis wasn't soft. He was going to compete, but coming from Europe, being as skinny as he was, as young as he was, and speaking in a voice that, that was as squeaky as it was, 
He came off as adorable. But Giannis was in no position to lead. He was trying to crack the lineup, show that he was not Bambi, show that he could absorb hundreds of plays in a new language. One practice, the team was practicing a common NBA play called floppy. The coaches noticed that Giannis looked agitated. Oppenheimer pulled him to the side. What's wrong? Coach, coach, I am not, I know I am skinny. I know I need to get stronger, Giannis said. But coach, I am not floppy. I am not floppy. What are you talking about? Everybody, they just keep looking at me, yelling at me. Floppy, 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 floppy. Giannis, floppy is a traditional NBA play. They're just saying it so you know it. They're repeating it so they're trying to help you learn it. Oh, so it is a play. Yes, it's a play. Damn, you know what's funny? Giannis being Bambi and also playing for the Bucks, he really is like the glow up of Bambi if you think about it. Okay, I'm done with these shitty jokes. He was like a piece of clay, Oppenheimer says. Whatever you told him to do, he wanted to do it. And if he couldn't do it, he did it until he could. No one spent more time in the gym after practice than Giannis. Jim Clemens, the Bucks assistant coach who had previously coached Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, winning nine championships over his coaching career, would notice how frustrated Giannis was with himself when he made a mistake. He'd labor on the same move over and over. He had heart, says Clemens, who would often tell Giannis, Giannis, you're going to be a wonderful player someday. Just don't become Americanized. What are you talking about? Giannis says. Don't become Americanized. Don't forget those work habits. Don't forget what has gotten to you, gotten you to where you are. And speaking of not forgetting what has gotten to you to where you are, the story of a team exec was at Giannis's apartment. He went into Giannis's pantry and snuck three Oreos out of Giannis's cookie jar, gobbling them a quickie. I guess he was hungry. The next day, Giannis came up to Marks, the team exec that came, was at his house at the practice facility. Hey man, did you eat my Oreos? What do you mean? When I left, I had 30 Oreos and I come back and there's three missing. Marks didn't know what to say. He was shocked that someone would count their Oreos. A millionaire NBA player who counted his Oreos. At that, but of course, Giannis counted his Oreos. It didn't matter that he had played, he had made it to the NBA. Inside of him was still the child always conscious of food running out. Hackett was the Bucks' strength coach at the time. He tried to teach the rookie patience. He wasn't going to get stronger in one day. But Giannis wanted results now. He wanted to get bigger now. During fitness tests, like the one-foot quickness test, Giannis would ask Hackett what the top mark was. He needed to beat it. He enjoyed spending all day working out. He was possessed, Hammond says. Giannis would lift up his shirt, parade around the facility, showing off. Hey, I got abs. He had one ab. He would also check himself out in the mirror after training sessions, looking at his pulsing biceps to see if they increased in size. He'd flex his squiggly arms, and then he turned back to his teammates to see if anyone was watching. Watch, watch, Giannis would say to anyone in the room. I'm going to get bigger. At this point, he's finally getting accustomed to being in the States. Uh -huh. Giannis would always insist on splitting the bill, even if they ate at McDonald's. 
Geiger, a team video assistant and one of Giannis's eventual best friends, took Giannis to the Cheesecake Factory for Giannis's birthday. The waiter gave him a free slice of birthday cake. Ross, Ross Geiger, Giannis said, his smile growing wide, candles flickering in front of his eyes. I think I got this because of my three magic letters, N-B-A. Soon Giannis discovered custard, Costco's pizza and hot dogs. He loved Costco. I just taste for the first time a smoothie. Man, God bless America. And the first time he got his check from the Bucks, he asked Butler, how do I get them to not take taxes out? Butler laughed, welcome to the NBA. People in Milwaukee fell in love with Giannis. And he was easy to love, a big kid in a small city fascinated with every new adventure. There was an innocence to Giannis, a naivety, a goofiness, a sweetness. Much of what he did, he said, was hilarious. When he learned to do a bicep curl, Rainkey, the former team attendant, would be in the locker room with him. And he'd say, Giannis, getting those muscles all big. You getting big for the women? Oh, yes, Giannis said. Very big biceps. The women love biceps. And then he realized, curls rhymes with girls. And a new saying was born. Curls for the girls. Curls for the girls. The girls love the curls. He'd say while looking at himself in the mirror doing bicep curls. Giannis was warm with whoever he encountered. On planes, when his teammates would sleep or have headphones on, Giannis would always be talking to flight attendants, asking them about their day. Flight attendants loved him. He just makes people feel so good. People gravitate towards them. There was also a very serious side to Giannis. A burning desire inside to prove that he belonged. But he was struggling playing in the league. He'd reach, he'd hack somebody, foul. He wasn't used to the speed of the play. The awe-inspiring things that he, that he did, a monster block, a near-impossible finish at the rim, would be erased by out-of-the-sync moments. He'd try to bump someone only to fall down himself. His arms and legs sprawled on the court. He'd look at referees like, where's the foul? But the whistle wouldn't blow. The Bucks were losing nearly every game, and Giannis was a no-name. When subbed out, Giannis seemed visibly frustrated. His teammates would try to coach him through, tell him to relax. You're going so fast, just calm down, they'd say. Breathe. Drew was patient with Giannis giving him some leeway with mistakes. Our biggest concern was his development, Drew says. But Giannis was hard on himself, beating, him up, beating himself up to the point that he started crying in front of the team. Drew loved that Giannis wasn't afraid. It reminded Drew of another player that he had coached, Kobe Bryant. Drew recalls the Lakers' first-round playoff against Portland in 1997. When Portland's Isaiah J.R. Ryder manhandled all the L.A. guards, including 18-year-old Kobe, winning Game 3. Afterwards, Drew told players that they had given their best efforts. Kobe just stared at Drew, angry. LD, Kobe said, I swear to you, this will never happen again. Drew asked him what he meant, and Kobe talked about how Ryder physically beat him up. That will never happen again, Kobe repeated. Sure enough. The Lakers won Game 4 and moved on to the Western Conference semifinals. In the, the following fall for training camp, Kobe's body had been transformed. He put on a ton of muscle. Drew thought of that whenever he saw Giannis berate himself. Kobe was the ultimate competitor, and I saw that same competitive drive in Giannis. 
Drew says. He's driven. Even in late summer, when Giannis first came to Milwaukee, when playing casual games of one-on-one with his teammates, he'd make a mistake or someone would get the best of him in a possession and he'd just run out, just take off, stopping in the tunnel arena. He'd ball his fists up, trying to control his emotion. The emotion was such that he'd say, yeah, he might be having a meltdown there. Giannis always sprinted right back. He didn't let the emotion affect his play, but he couldn't stomach not living up to the expectations he set for himself. He was always working, almost too hard. Giannis wasn't raised to hold in his emotions on the court in Greece. He used to cry after every game, says Zivas, his former coach. But when Giannis came to America, some of his coaches and teammates were taken aback by it. It's just not something one sees in the hyper-masculine NBA. You can't cry, Hackett told Giannis. Just don't do that. But the more it happened, the more Hackett sensed how badly the rookie ached to be great. Anything less was a failure. Because failing wasn't just failing in the weight room. Failing would mean failing his family. And failing his family would mean returning to Greece. And returning to Greece would mean hustling on the streets again. He would think about it like, I'm a rookie. I'm hours away from my family. My whole family is left behind. Did I want to just come here to go through the motions? No, Alex says. Did we go through two-hour bus rides, go through all that stuff to go over to America to just be average? No, that's not how it goes. Even right before games, Giannis would go through a full on-court workout, asking Oppenheimer to hit him harder with giant cushions. Sometimes it felt like we had to shut the gym down in order for him to stop working. Butler, his teammate, says, Giannis would return to the practice court after games. He wasn't able to let go of his mistakes. This reminds me of a quote from Game of Thrones that I remembered while reading this part of the story. And this quote is Littlefinger to Varys. And you can search this on YouTube. Varys says, Chaos is a gaping pit to swallow us whole. And Littlefinger says, chaos isn't a pit. Chaos is a ladder. Many who try to climb it fail and never get to try again. The fall breaks them. And some are given a chance to climb, but they refuse. They cling to the realms or the gods or love, illusions. Only the ladder is real, and the climb is all that is. Though he was hard on himself, He was also sure of himself. Those closest to him could tell he knew he was going to be really good. Ever so often, he'd tell Walters, the Bucks rookie, about his master plan. Next year, I'll be averaging 10 points a game. Giannis said, I'll keep getting better and better. And then the next year after that, I'll be averaging closer to 20. And then he'd tell everyone, I want to be the very best. I'm going to be the man. And they laughed. Okay, kid, sure. Those are lofty goals. He really believed he was going to be one of the best players in the NBA, Oppenheimer says. No matter how far-fetched his goals seemed to be at the time, Giannis used to randomly say to his teammates or staffers, I am the Greek freak. I am the Greek freak. And then he flexes muscles as if to prove it. 
I am the LeBron James of Greece. Giannis understood the influence LeBron had in America, so he planned on being the Greek equivalent. When Giannis met Greg Signorelli, an athletic training intern that year, Giannis said, you can call me champ. I am the champ. He walks proud, a teammate says. He walks like a king. Ironic, because his middle name, Ugo, is king in Nigerian. But every day without his family pierced him. It made him think everything he had endured up to this point. He wondered if it was all worth it. The grueling hours in the weight room, adding at least 30 pounds of muscles in mere months, getting smacked in the paint day after day, crumbling to the floor, it killed him. Alex says about Giannis being away from the family. He was calling us all the time. He missed us and was constantly thinking about how he was going to bring us over there. The dream Giannis had constructed in his head didn't look like this. It didn't feel like this. He had always imagined being here, but never once his family without him. He had never been without them for more than three days, unless he was traveling to a youth tournament. He had never not slept side by side with his brother. He'd never not had to take two buses with them just to run up and down a court for a few hours, coming home to the parents who had asked, did you make the most of your time today? He was more than homesick, more than frustrated. For the first time in his life, he was deeply lonely, lost. He missed his brothers. He missed sleeping next to them, warmed by their bodies, not, not blankets. He tried to sleep, but this uncomfortable feeling gnawed at him. This was too nice. This was too much. He pulled the mattress off the bed, put it on the floor. He'd curl onto the mattress. He shut his eyes, and he'd doze off. One night over Skype, around November 2013, frustrated with his family's inability to obtain visas, Giannis told, I'm going to do this for as long as I have to, but if y'all can't come, I'm coming back. His brothers were floored. They didn't know whether he was being frustrated or genuinely at a breaking point, genuinely considering giving up. But he meant it. He might leave the NBA. Giannis relayed a similar message to his agents, telling him that the only reason why he wanted to play in the NBA was to provide a better life for his family. Without them, what reason was there to be in America? Take me back, Giannis said. I'd rather be with my family than just being over here. Giannis felt guilty. Guilty at all he was enjoying, all he was learning, when people back home still didn't have much. It was a strange feeling, clutching more cash in his palm than he ever thought possible, feeling emptier than he thought possible, than he ever thought possible. Giannis could compartmentalize well, from years of masking his pain, pretending that his stomach was not growling, pretending that he wasn't unsure where he and his family might be sleeping the next but Milwaukee was a different challenge. Being scared to walk in the streets because the culture is totally different. Giannis later told 60 Minutes, I was scared. I was lonely. If you've ever watched the Avatar, the cartoon, not the movie, when you were younger, you may remember the following quote from Uncle Iroh. And I'm just bringing this quote up just because it, this part of the story just really resonated with me. You must never give in to despair. Allow yourself to slip down that road, and you surrender to your lowest instincts. In the darkest of times, 
Hope is something you give yourself. That is the meaning of inner strength. One road trip, Brandon Knight sensed that Giannis was withdrawn, barely leaving his hotel room. Knight caught Giannis in the hallway, on the way to his room to scare his family. Yo, what are you doing? Knight said. Oh, I'm just going to my room. Giannis said. Come here. Get your haircut. My haircut? Yeah, a bunch of us are getting it done in a different room. Come on. Giannis agreed, though a bit reluctant. When he sat down in the chair, greeting the barber, he grinned wide. He was excited. A special hotel haircut with an American teammate. For a moment, his sadness softened. He had teammates who cared about him. The cold was a big adjustment for Giannis. Um, he didn't own warm clothes at first. He only had the Buck sweatsuits, which he wore on every single day. Ilyasova, one of his teammates, gave him a pair of jeans, as did Mayo and Butler. But he would just wear a light down jacket or a sweatshirt and sweats on those frigid Milwaukee days. Sometimes Giannis would have to hold onto Geiger's arm when they were walking because he was shivering, wearing Nike slides with socks rather than snow boots. And this is a really funny story. One night, as they were leaving the Cheesecake Factory near 11 p.m., a heavy snow fall, uh, was falling. It was the beginning of a blizzard. Inches and inches of snow had already piled up outside as Giannis and Geiger got headed to the car. Geiger drove, just going about 30 miles an hour on the freeway with headlights and fog lights on and air conditioning runner running to clear the windshield. But the snow kept pelting down so hard Geiger couldn't see at all. He was scared. What if something happens to Giannis, he thought. Geiger pulled over. Don't pull over, Giannis said. We can keep going. Dude, Geiger said, I can see. Okay, bro, where's that towel? Geiger used to always keep a towel in his back seat to wipe melting snow off leather seats. Giannis grabbed the towel and said, open the window. Geiger opened the passenger windows and Giannis, still buckled into his seat, took his right arm, towel in hand, and lunged forward and stretched his massive wingspan all over Geiger's window side, serving as a human windshield wiper, clearing, cleaning each side every 30 seconds. They were eventually able to make it home. Giannis tried to stay upbeat, bringing birthday cupcakes for his team on his 19th birthday, but he couldn't slow down on the court. All that energy, all that go, churning inside him, threatening to detonate. He'd foul someone inadvertently, turn the ball over off his knee on the fast break. He was trying so hard to be somebody that sometimes he seemed all over the place. His mind was going a million miles a minute. Giannis had to succeed. He had to be great. Now. But he wasn't anywhere near great. Anyone watching could tell he was going to be really good at some some future time. And I think the following line is pretty important. He was a project with a capital P. A player who excited, who frustrated, who dazzled, and who disappointed. We're all projects. We can't expect perfection from us at this very given moment. But you need to just take one step forward. That's all you need to take. You just need to keep going, and eventually you'll get to where you want to go. You can't expect to make one big leap to get to where you want to go. All you can do is just take a step. The following are just some excerpts on Giannis's character. Geiger sensed something innocent, something soft, 
and his friends insistent in Giannis to continue hanging out longer. Geiger relented. He went back to his own apartment to retrieve his laptop and started breaking down game tape in Giannis's place. Around midnight, Geiger sent the video to the coaching staff, released to have made the deadline. Geiger was working 12-hour days and looking after Giannis, and it felt like a full-time job. He enjoyed it immensely, but like Giannis, he was working to the bone. You going to bed now? Geiger asked. We have practice pretty early. Giannis paused. His voice grew thin, barely audible. Will you just stay the night? What do you mean? Come on, man. I've got two beds in the other room, Giannis said. I don't want to be, I don't want to sleep alone anymore. All right, I'll stay. Gregor took a pillow, went to another room, and dozed off. Giannis went to his own room, feeling a little less alone. The next morning, the two hopped into Geiger's Subaru to go to practice. Geiger realized at that point he th- crossed a threshold. He had gained Giannis's trust, something Giannis still allows for you to do. As a child, Giannis learned that trusting people was dangerous. Trusting people could get his parents deported. Trusting people could let others see that there was vulnerability in him, fear in him, and he could not, would not, let anyone see that. The day after Thanksgiving, the Bucks were in Charlotte for a matchup game against the Hornets. The team had a Thanksgiving dinner at a local convention hall. Giannis sat at a table, scrolling on his phone, while sitting next to Oppenheimer. What are you looking at, Ross? Uh, Black Friday deals? Giannis, Oppenheimer said. You're an NBA player now. You don't need to be looking at deals. Nope, Giannis said, shaking his head. No matter how big I get, no matter if I become a superstar, I will be always looking for deals. I am always going to be me. Money was terrifying for Giannis. Um, because the second he signed his contract with Milwaukee, he became the patriarch of his family. His dad always would be, but in essence, he became the provider. Everything that happened to them from that point on was on his shoulders, his back, and his wallet. He wanted that responsibility, so Giannis was hesitant to spend money, and he thought deeply about each purchase. He was essentially sending all his money that he earned back home to his parents and brothers. He didn't want to spend a dime, said Knight, the Bucks guard. Once, Giannis turned on his TV and it wouldn't power on, so he called Geiger. My TV's not working, and then Geiger figured out what was wrong. Giannis hadn't paid his cable bill. My bill? He said. How much is it? It was only $20, he was only $20 a month. Oh, I'm not paying that, he said, and he didn't. And Giannis couldn't believe that the Bucks provided tables of free food before and after practice. Platters of pasta, energy bars, chicken, Gatorade, chips, for free. And after everyone had taken theirs, he'd fill up four or five plastic containers of food to take home. His teammates would look at him strangely, unsure why he was hoarding so much food. Giannis, Hackett would say, pulling him aside, don't worry, there's more. But how could Giannis be sure? More, More was wishful thinking. He had always aimed for enough. One bad selling day, one mishap could lead to not enough. He couldn't turn that fear of not enough on. You, you and I probably sense that pattern. Fear, fear was what motivated him. In next week's podcast, we'll dive into someone else who is also driven by fear. But that book gives a little more detail of how you can utilize fear to your advantage. Veronica, his mother, 
in her white puffer jacket and gray sweatpants, and Charles in his black puffer and blue sweatpants, opened the door of the limousine and looked around. It was jarring. They were in America, finally. Hammond, the Bucks GM, had arranged for the limousine to pick them up at Chicago O'Hara International Airport, along with cake and flowers. On that day, February 3rd, 2014, a day etched into Giannis's mind. It was one of the happiest days of his life. His parents stood in front of the limousine, proudly taking a picture. Veronica was so happy, she wouldn't let go of the door handle as the photo was snapped. Giannis's spirit seemed to have lifted overnight. His whole attitude changed says Nick Walters, the fellow rookie. The U.S. Embassy in Greece issued a P-Visa for personal support for to Charles, Veronica, and his other two brothers, given that they'd be helping out with emotional support and helping him develop in basketball. The Antetokounmpo's would sit in the same place at the Bradley Center every game. And it was on the same side as the player's bench. Most of the time, families would sit across from the player's bench, just so they wouldn't be distracting their son or friend or whatever. But Giannis requested his family sit closer to them. He needed to see them. He needed to feel them. Hammond gave each member of the family a key to the gym. Oftentimes, Veronica would be in the gym around 11 o'clock at night, passing the ball to Giannis. She'd grab the ball out of the rim, pass it to him over and over again. And you'd think, at this, this is the point in which his desire was completed. He was finally reunited with his parents, and he was safe. But there was more, obviously. What if we all went to sleep and wake up and were back to where we started? The brothers would continue to say that phrase over and over again to each other, laughing but thinking about how far they came, but that fear lurking just beneath the surface persisted. The phrase motivated, especially Giannis. If he messed up, if he didn't perform up to his standard, everything his family had gained would be gone. Whatever is given to you can also be taken away from you, he'd remind his brothers. They felt that feeling of impermanence acute. We didn't feel secure yet, Alex says. In some ways, they hadn't left Sepolia. In ways, while the desire may have been completed, achieved, it wasn't satisfied. It will never be enough. And that's oftentimes a pattern you'll see with a lot of the greats where they can't turn it off. And thankfully, with Giannis, there isn't too much bad, for lack of better words, that's come along with a lot of his hard work. But oftentimes, and David Sandra mentions this in his Founders podcast, that a lot of the great founders, and so applied to a lot of the greats and conquerors too, is the other fucked up parts of their lives that kind of comes with this inability to turn it off, if that makes sense. So that's also a part of studying the greats, studying what to do and what to do. As the Bucks watched Parker, Jabari Parker, the more they fell in love. Parker was tough, hardworking, and had grown up on the south side of Chicago. Selecting Parker was a huge deal for the Bucks. 
He was the first elite player since the Bucks landed Glenn Robinson, the number one pick in 1994, and Andrew Bogut, the number one pick in 2005. Jabari would be the cornerstone that they had been searching for, not Giannis. Giannis was viewed as an important piece of the puzzle, a player who could complement Parker. Naturally, Giannis wasn't exactly thrilled. He wanted to be the best player on the team. He wasn't just going to hand that title off to someone else. Three days later, the, the Bucks fired Drew and hired Jason Kidd, the Hall of Fame point guard. Meanwhile, Giannis was processing the loss of his first coach, the coach who was patient with him, nurturing to him. Giannis had much to do, preparing for his sophomore season. He led all rookies with 61 blocks, making all rookie second team, but he was critical of himself. He graded his season performance a D-, telling local reporters he needed to work on everything, shooting, dribbling, strength. At the beginning, it was hard to believe. I was like, whoa, I'm playing with these guys now? I'm on the same court as these guys? But as the season went on, I began to believe, and I said to myself, I belong here. When the 19-year-old landed in Athens for a training camp during the summer for the Greek national team, Giannis was being extremely serious. He never smiled. He never seemed to relax. The muscles in his face. One veteran player on the team was offended by the, his apparent snub. He took Giannis' seriousness for a rudeness. The vet came up to the coach and said, Yo, tell this kid to change his attitude because I'm going to punch him in his face. That's how hard Giannis competed. Giannis wasn't acting like a kid at his age. Some veterans on the team, 10 years senior to Giannis, thought the young player was cocky just because he was coming from the NBA. Unfortunately, Giannis didn't get to play a single minute. But instead of being discouraged, he shot for hours after. And then he went up to the assistant coach and said, if I make three out of the four, three-point shots. Can you tell the coach to let me play a little bit more for the next friendly? Giannis made two of four, but the sentiment stood. He wanted his coaches to know he would do whatever he could to get in that game. After practice ended at 7.30 p.m., when everyone else went to shower, Giannis would be tinkering with the shooting form. Giannis wouldn't leave until 9 p.m., refusing to shower until he returned to the hotel. Giannis would stand in front of the mirror and practice his scowl. He'd squint his eyes, suck in his teeth, his nose would wrinkle, his forehead would tighten, his lips would curl, and then he'd let out a grunt. He was trying to be more aggressive, less adorable, more intimidating, less innocent. He needed a new identity, heading into the second NBA season, one vastly different from the goofy, endearing rookie discovering smoothies for the first time. He needed to get he had to practice it, but he's not that guy, Robin says. He's a lovable guy, a nice gentleman. Giannis didn't want to be seen as a nice gentleman on the court. He wanted to be seen as someone who would tear your heart out. He tried to pattern his scowl after Russell Westbrook's scowl. Giannis loved Westbrook, his demeanor, his speed, but especially his scowl. Giannis came into practice, scowling and grunting. This is my new thing, Giannis told his teammates. Bro, Knight told him, you, know, you still don't have any muscles, relax. Giannis found it hilarious. Giannis' teammates found it hilarious when he attempted the scowl after a dunk, something he started doing toward the end of his rookie season. The first time he did it against the Pistons, 
He ran back to the other end of the court with so much aggression. Even Butler was surprised. I didn't know where the hell that came from, Butler says, laughing. Afterwards, his teammates asked him, What is that? Where'd you get it from? They assume he learned it from YouTube, where he learned everything in those days. Giannis laughed. Oh, Giannis said casually, in this whole thing kind of tone? Oh, I took it from Westbrook. Giannis's scowl seemed out of place, manufactured. We'd be like, oh, he must have practiced that at home today, Knight says. And the scowl was coming along, but it still wasn't loud enough, mean enough, convincing enough. You gotta work on your roar, Knight would sarcastically advise Giannis. You gotta work on your yell. We gotta get you right, man. So what Giannis unintentionally created here is what the Roman philosopher named Cicero called the second self. I took this idea from the Academy Ideas YouTube channel, so you can search them if you want more information. But the second self is an alter ego we create. Like a mold of who we want to become based on emulation of people who we deem worthy. So when we were younger, our self was created based off our caregivers or our parents. So in this case, Giannis here, he's emulating Westbrook and later in the story, Kobe Bryant. We use this ideal ego as a means to shape our thoughts and behaviors. The construction of a second self begins with a search for heroes, kind of like what we're doing together. By studying the greats and conquerors. After picking your avatars, you need to study and understand their personality traits, how they cultivated them, how they dealt with adversity, and how they overcame with challenges. What you then do is you enter into this alter ego mode and you become this person, almost like you're putting on a performance. It'll feel unnatural at first, but it's important that you don't tell anyone about it. As speaking about it would be a natural expression of the anxiety of being in such a novel situation. Our personalities have dimensions that are inherently plastic, moldable. With Giannis practicing this aggression, this scowl, he was trying to shed the skin of the visceral child who would cry at any hallmark of personal defeat. So on a personal note here, it's been interesting applying the second self concept, even just based off this like one reading of our first great. So for example, like when I'm working or if I'm at the gym, if I feel like if I start acting like a little bitch, I'll literally tell myself like, yo, if if I was Giannis, what would I be doing right now? I'd be working harder. He outworks himself. On the first day of training camp to open the 2014-2015 season, Giannis wouldn't crack a smile. Not for a second. He couldn't. Since Parker was the new star, Giannis was still the curiosity. The two would eventually become to like each other, even become friends, but not at first. Giannis felt like the Bucks were supposed to be his team. He had earned that after the way he played his first season, and he was going to prove that he was the leader. Some fantasized that the pair would become Batman and Robin of a potential new era in Milwaukee. Want to be Robin? He needed to be Batman. He wasn't on the throne, Oppenheimer says, but the chair was empty and he wasn't going to help somebody get there when he thought he had the same amount of ability to get there. Players scrimmaged that day. One play, Giannis grabbed a rebound, dribbled in and out to beat his defender, and then dribbled the ball behind his back to fake out another defender, sprinting down court all the way to the cup for a dunk. It took him just four dribbles to get 
from one end to the other. Everyone in the gym stopped for a sec. That dunk was surprising. For the first time, Giannis looked really mean. Like, real mean. Jason Kidd, his coach, wanted Giannis to operate like an assassin on the court. A true killer. Meaning he not he needed to not only carry himself with a certain swagger, a certain meanness, but he needs his game to back up that kind of demeanor. Only about a year removed from his own playing career, Kidd was pretty much a player hiding in a coach's suit. Even on the sidelines, you can see the competitiveness bleeding out of his skin. You can see him trying to suppress it. Kidd was known for playing mind games. He wouldn't yell. He wouldn't act overtly aggressive. Far from He was more delicate, soft-spoken, getting under someone's skin, knowing the thing that made each players explode. He never gave players answers, wanting them to figure it out on their own. His coaching style with the Nets, the team prior, and now with the Bucks, was described as psychological warfare by one former player. When asked about Kidd, players and coaches would often say, on or off the record, he was loved, he was hated. His coaching style was described as follows, Jedi mind tricks. Oppenheimer says, Mind fucks, says one former teammate, a bit more bluntly. Machiavellian, says a former Buck staffer. He's relished that combativeness in people. But also, he's a winner. A natural winner. He's a competitive motherfucker, says Chris Copeland. He just brutalized people, says the next player. There's plenty of teammates that didn't like him, not even as a coach, not as a person. He'd pit people against each other. I think he had a few rocky relationships with players, says Johnny O'Brien. But one thing he did was he laid the tradition of a winning team. Something, sometimes the way he went about it, being straightforward, he was just an asshole. But I think it paid off in the long run. He was a player too, but he also doesn't go. There's definitely some things that people misunderstood about J-Kid. Ultimately, he, ha- he wants to win. He has good intentions. Instead of telling you what to do, he engages you. He empowers you by asking, what do you see? Little things would be such a big deal to him. At one point, center Thon Maker didn't have an iPhone, messaging up like the team's blue bubble on the iPhone group chat. And Kid was so pissed about it that he made the team run suicides because... Kid felt like Maker not getting an iPhone was an example of the team not being united. There was another side to Jason Kidd, one that held players accountable, gave them confidence, raised the level of play. If players were doing the wrong drill, Kid would grab the ball, hop in the drill, and show players how to do it perfectly. Kid sometimes would dominate and say, guys, this isn't fucking hard. Kid hated when players were not on time. Or when he had to go over something again, he was a perfectionist and thought players should get it right the first time. He had this look, this death stare that was piercing. His mind was several steps ahead. The things he saw, few could. It was like being around Einstein, Oppenheimer says. Giannis realized that and wanted information, and Jason found a way to feed him information. Kid poured hours into helping Giannis, but was less sympathetic with other players. I don't think he could identify with the average player, says another ex-player. 
There's a reason Hall of Famers are Hall of Famers, especially point guards. Things that no one else does. I think he would just take it out on players and just verbally go at them. Just make them feel like shit. And that they couldn't be as good as him. Who could just like step on the floor and do this fancy thing. Kid would challenge players by calling them out during film sessions. Not by yelling, but by asking the player in front of everyone. Tell me. What were you doing here? What were you thinking here? It was humiliating. The frustration was, Copeland said, he's fucking Jason Kidd, one of the best point guards of all time. He's like, why don't you just do this? It's like, bro, you're Jason Kidd. You can do that. He was hard on a lot of guys because his level and his IQ was just so much higher than everyone else. Kidd would ask Giannis to explain what he did wrong during the film sessions. There was no right answer, but a nod wasn't acceptable. He had to say his mistake out loud. That was difficult for Giannis, who wasn't a vocal player. Though gregarious off the court, he was still quiet on the court. Remember, shadow. And he was still trying to fit in. He hated speaking on the floor. He'd rather show leadership through action, through work ethic. Pulled Giannis out of his comfort zone by pointing out flaws verbally, seeing how Giannis would respond. It was part of Kid's plan. Both had a workaholic drive that few would understand. Both valued work above everything else. One of the few things Giannis did that set himself apart from others, Sweeney says, was that he had in his mind that I want to be the hardest working player in the world. Giannis would go straight to the gym after returning home from road trips. He'd often bring his brothers, incorporating them into his drills. Giannis worked just as intensely as he played games. Maybe even more intensely. He put in time others weren't willing to do, Sweeney says. He wanted to be pushed past where he thought he could be pushed. He takes practice harder than he actually plays, so that come game time, game time will be easier. Kid continued to incorporate mind games by not playing Giannis or Parker in the fourth quarters early on because the team played better with that. They're rookies. They're young players. And that really burned Giannis up, says Nicholas Turner, an exec. He always got better from that. Kid's tactics were working. Giannis was working harder than ever, coming back to the, the, the training center after games upset at himself, working to correct his mistakes late into the night, and at times cursing so loud that for no one to hear. You're not going to break this kid, Hammond says. Jason would challenge him, and Giannis would come right back at him for more. Look, Jason's a tough guy. He's a really tough guy, but so is Giannis. The coaches told each player to keep a notebook, to jot information down, and plays. Most guys couldn't stick with it, Sweeney says. Giannis became obsessed with it. He still carries that little black college-ruled spiral-bound mead notebook wherever he goes today. Even if it's nowhere near a basketball court. The Bucks were struggling, dropping a game to Charlotte on December 23rd, right before Christmas. Players returned to their locker rooms dejected, silent. Everyone was ready for the next two days off with their families. Zaza, Kid said, turning to Pachulia, Zaza Pachulia, but addressing the group. Do you think this was a winnable game? Yes, it was a winnable game, Pachulia said. Do you think we deserve the next two days off? Pachulia couldn't believe Kid had put him in that situation, threatening to ruin Christmas. Pachulia tried to strike a diplomatic tone, 
You know what, coach? I understand the frustration. We're all frustrated by this. Kid then turned to Jared Dudley. What do you think? Do you think we should take the next two days off? Dudley too gave a diplomatic answer. But Kid wasn't satisfied. So you guys have practice tomorrow morning at 9am. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Player said. What do you mean? We're going to practice tomorrow. We book flights to different places. I don't care. You guys get paid to do a job. So you're doing your job tomorrow. Things change. Practice next morning was ugly. The team ran and ran and ran and ran like a college team. I don't think I've done that since J-Kid. Since I left J-Kid. Knight says, it was not normal. And I believe this is the practice where Larry Sanders ended up going to a hospital for mental health issues that ended up ruining his career. The next day, the Bucks played Cleveland. Kid told the team before the game, Giannis isn't going to play tonight. If we're going to win, if we're going to be the best team, that can't happen. Giannis's lack of intensity, he, he had hit a wall, essentially. And so many young players do. He was tired and Kid was old school. He wasn't afraid to sit his best players down. Kid hoped benching Giannis against Cleveland would be another teachable moment, an opportunity for him to refocus. The message was, we need you. And Giannis had played so well up to that game, starting 67 of the team's last 76, 77 games. By practice the next day, Giannis was still fuming. The next day, he came in with his head shaved. Oh boy. His teammates were concerned. Bro, you alright? They asked, what's going on with you? Yeah, Giannis said, shrugging. I'm just going through it. The next day, Bucks played the Knicks at Madison Square Garden. And before the game, Giannis told Sweeney. He vowed to play angry. Rebound angry, score angry, pass angry. Why angry? Sweeney asked him. I didn't play. If you do that for this game, you gotta do it for all the games. The game started, and Giannis blocked a shot. He yanked the ball to the air, zoomed down the court. New York's Cole Aldrich was just ahead of him, and as Giannis sprinted toward him, dribbling behind his back, Aldrich instinctively moved out of the way, allowing Giannis to hammer home a dunk. Giannis did the Westbrook scowl, the Westbrook Giannis version of it that he'd been practicing all year. The arena erupted. Kid tried to hide a faint smile. That was the part of what J-Kid was trying to do. Another teammate said, just try to channel that anger into a game, and it came out on that play. Giannis finished the game with 23 points and 9 rebounds to help the Bucks win. 99-91. Afterwards, Giannis told the reporters he had played angry, and then he showed them what he meant, and showed them his scowl. He scrunched up his cheeks, tightened his nose, and dumped his ugly face. And then he softened, unwrinkled his forehead, and smiled. He laughed, and reporters did too. The ugly face was prettier today, Giannis joked. I had swag too. And then he stiffened back up and explained his approach from here on out. I try to be angry when I play, he said. I try to be mad. Mean mad. At the start of the 2015-2016 training, you could see him learning his powers. Part of that was because Giannis didn't look like a kid. Giannis is a killer. A real killer, Copeland thought. In nearly a decade playing pro, Copeland wasn't used to a player playing that intensely in practice. Even with little things like stretching and warming up, Giannis had to be first. It's not an insult, but Giannis is like a creature. He didn't have to practice scowling anymore. His lips would instinctively curl. His nose would automatically scrunch. His body would go through a transformation. He was more chiseled, 
more confident, stronger, tougher, bigger than he'd ever been, clocking in at 242 pounds. His second self has finally been integrated properly. Giannis no longer expressed himself by crying, at least not publicly. He tucked his emotions inside. Most nights you couldn't recognize if he was happy or uncomfortable. Most nights he was uncomfortable because he wanted to be better and he was not satisfied, a teammate says. Giannis is obsessed with getting better and bigger. By 3.30pm, he had already been fully drenched and sweating through a workout, ahead of a 7.30 game. You know we have a game in a couple hours, right? A teammate would ask. While playing the Lakers, Kid took Giannis into a private room with Kobe. Giannis stared at this idol, this man in front of him, who had no idea what it meant to share one pair of Nike Kobe's with the Nosses. The first playoff game Giannis had ever watched in Sepolia at the Internet Cafe was the Lakers against the Celtics, Kobe against Paul Pierce. Oh shit, Giannis thought, finally meeting Kobe. Jason Kidd and Kobe Bryant? I'm having a conversation with them? Kobe gave him advice for an hour. He told him to work on his jump shot, get in the gym every day, shoot a thousand jumpers. Giannis vowed to shoot 1,500. Kobe also told him about the mentality it took to be great. Be serious until the last day you play basketball, Kobe told him. Also noting the importance of recovery, of having to take care of one's body, of making sacrifices. You have to have that killer mindset, Kobe said and continued. That mindset that you will not be beat, that you will outwork everyone. It was like a light bulb just went off about what it takes to be great. Giannis worked harder than ever, still, with the goal of now trying to win the MVP. He had the chance to work out with his idol, Kobe, that summer. Giannis prepared question after question, writing them down in his little notebook to bring with him. He showed up for the 2.30pm workout at 11am, getting shots up and treatment before Kobe even walked in. He wanted to show Kobe he wasn't there to mess around, he wasn't there for a social media post. He really wanted to learn. He wanted to listen and improve and he took pride in beating Kobe to the gym by more than three hours. After the two-shot jumper after jumper, 300 to 400 shots, all the same, making 20 at a spot, Giannis was a bit shy about asking Kobe so many questions, telling him he didn't want to feel like an interview. No, no, ask me whatever, Kobe said. Are you sure? Kobe nodded. Giannis opened his notebook and began asking how to prepare. How do you constantly improve? Kobe told him that day that he had to think outside the box. You always got to be a kid, Kobe said. Be a kid? Giannis asked. What do you mean? This whole time, Giannis was trying to show that he was big and strong, mature, a man, a mean man at that. No, what I mean is a kid uses fantasy. You can see a kid being creative, playing with two rocks and playing around with them. When you're a kid, you always want to learn. You ask two questions. Why do I do this? Why am I sitting in the passenger seat? Why am I going to school today? You're always asking questions. Be a kid. Giannis was virtually unstoppable as the season began, eventually dropping 44 against the Cavs in December 2018. He was trying to lead, not just with his actions, but with his words something he'd learned from the point guard Jason Terry the previous season. Terry had told him that being a leader was being able to have hard conversations with teammates, 
Leaders have to tell teammates what they need to hear, not the praise they want to receive, Terry told them. Leaders keep their voices heard, and honesty is eventually appreciated. Giannis looked at him, a little shy. Are you sure I can say that? In the 2019 playoffs now, the Bucks had lost to the Raptors, who'd eventually go on to win the championship in the Eastern Conference Finals. The Bucks were up two games on the Raptors and were then gentlemen swept. Giannis didn't sleep for two days. He lay in bed at night, wide awake, thinking, hurting. It was that hurt that lingers. Nothing can be done about it. It would leave when, he, when, I, when it was ready to leave. Two nothing. It's hard to move on from something like that. You think you have something, and then it slips away. You let it slip away. A 60-win season, you want to be proud for having come that far, but coming far doesn't get you farther. You always, always want more, but never be greedy. Giannis missed his father, his sayings, a lot. Charles would have been proud of him. Who would know exactly what to say in this moment? At this point, unfortunately, his father had passed away from a heart attack just a year prior. His mind drifted. What could I have done better? What do I need to change? He started thinking about the summer. The things he was going to work on. How much better he needed to be to make sure he never felt this way again. While the Bucks didn't win the championship in 2019, they would later win it in 2021. And he'd go on to win the MVP in 2019 and another time. And here's an excerpt from his speech. Two years ago, I had a goal in mind that I was going to be the best player in the league. I'm going to do whatever it takes to help my team win. And I'm going to win the MVP. Every day that I step on the floor, I always think about my dad. And that motivates me and pushes me to play harder and move forward. Even when my body is sore, even when I don't feel like playing. At the end of the day, this is just the beginning. My goal is to win a championship, he said. We're going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. In reading this story, the, the big takeaway message I have from this is confidence is extremely important. The question then becomes, like, how do you develop confidence? There's that famous Alex Hormozzi quote, Confidence isn't yelling self-affirmations in a mirror. Confidence is having an undeniable stack of proof you are what you say you are. Therefore, to become confident, just like a muscle, you need to progressively overload your undeniable stack of proof. Using Giannis as an example, he sucked a ball when he first started, but he kept working harder and harder. So let's say you're using some scale, let's say 0 to 10, where 10 is MVP and 0 is a scrub. When you're a scrub with a skill level of 0, you have no confidence. But you need to know where that end point is, where the 10 is. And that's where like having a roadmap helps. And that's where finding the greats, finding people who've achieved what you want to achieve before you helps. So you understand like what you need to do to get from 0 to 10. And as David Senner would say, belief comes before ability. And what that quote means is being able to see the end point before you get there. If you're able to execute from steps 0 to 10, you'll get to 10. So you start off small. You get a win to level up from 0 to 1, and then 1 to 2, and then so on. But you need to believe that you can get to 10. And the best way to do that is to find the 10s, just like what we're doing together. That's it for today. We're going to wrap things up for now. If you're eager for a deeper dive, I recommend grabbing the biography Giannis by Mirren Fader. Mentioned in the show notes, no matter where or when you're tuning in, make the most of the remainder of your day and keep fucking going.